0: Hello and welcome. I'm Isabella Tabarovsky, and you are listening to The Russia File. Today, my guest is Ekaterina Sergatskova, founder and editor-in-chief of the award-winning Zaborona Media, an independent Ukrainian online magazine. Ekaterina has reported extensively on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. She has been a contributor to the Canon Institute's Focus Ukraine blog. And today we're talking about what life is like for Ukrainian citizens under the Russian occupation. We're also talking about Russia's war crimes and the future of journalism in Ukraine. Katya, welcome. Hi, thank you for invitation. I'd like to start with your personal story. I understand that you grew up in Crimea and moved to mainland Ukraine after Russia's invasion and annexation of Crimea. What was that like for you? I can imagine it only right now that I saw the beginning of the occupation
1: and I lived in the occupation for some time. Because when the Russians came to Crimea, I was in Kyiv at the time. I was reporting from Maidan, and I decided to go to Crimea and to see what is happening by my eyes. I've been witnessing the beginning of the occupation, so I decided to report from Crimea from different cities, like how it goes, how Russian soldiers came to the peninsula. And I had a house in Crimea. I actually lived there for a long time. I had friends, relatives there. So when I saw how Russian troops came to Crimea, it was surreal, actually, because when you walk on your streets that you know so well since your childhood, and now you see them with Russian soldiers, with Russian flags, you just can't process it. You can't understand that this is happening in your own city, in your hometown. So that was something pretty traumatic for everyone who used to live in Crimea and didn't want Russia to come there. And what city were you in? I was in Simferopol. It is my hometown. So I used to live in Mm -hmm. Simferopol. It is kind of a capital of Crimea, right? The central city of the peninsula. And I was witnessing how the life is changing day to day, because in the beginning, I saw everyday protests, pro-Russian, pro-Ukrainian protests. I reported from different cities where something was happening at the moment. But very soon after the so-called referendum. The picture started to change because people started to live under the occupiers. Lots of things started to change very quickly. And last time I've been to Crimea, it was in the beginning of 2014, in January. I guess I used one of the last trains from Crimea to Ukrainian
0: city in Kherson region. I haven't been there since then. When you left Crimea, did you think that it would be for such a long time, for many years? Did you think it was just going to be temporary? What was your thinking then?
1: When it started in Crimea, I realized that it could be for long. So I actually didn't think that I will return very soon. And when the invasion started this year, I thought that, okay, this is invasion. This is very big. But this is also an opportunity that Crimea could be free from the occupation.
0: So, you left Crimea and you went to Kiev, correct? Yes. How quickly did you begin to report from the war in the East?
1: Well, actually, when I was in Crimea, I realized that now I'm a war correspondent because I've been reporting from the military bases and it was kind of war reporting, so yeah. when the war in Donbas started, I immediately went there and started to report from Donbas. I've been reporting from Donbas till 2015, then I born a child, so Uh, I was not able to go to the war zones anymore. And then I went to Iraq. It was in 2017.
0: So I continued to report from war zones. Wow. And you started Zaborona when? In 2017. And why did you start it? And tell us what the name means. Zaborona means taboo in Ukrainian, or you can say prohibition. And our main
1: kind of a manifesto, is that prohibition is prohibited. It's a reference to French students' revolution back in 1967. It was important for me and for my husband to report on different taboo topics because Ukraine is the most free country in the post-Soviet world, but still it has lots of different taboos in society. We have so many topics that are uncovered. So we decided to make some things more visible in Ukraine. We've been reporting on LGBTQ rights, about far-right groups and different minorities in Ukraine, which was and is really important for me and for my team, because we know that the war creates different demons. Even if it was started by the other country, we still have to think about democracy, freedoms, and how to
0: change our society for better. So that's why we decided to start Zaborona. Yes, a war creates a lot of pressure on journalists a lot of times. Journalists get pulled into the information warfare and they want to be part of the defense for their country. How do you position yourself and Zaborona in that regard?
1: I really don't like this term information welfare because it means that journalists are just the soldiers. In the information war, which is not true because we are soldiers of truth. Journalists, if you want to be a journalist, if you want to tell people what is going on actually and try to make sense of what is going on, you don't have to be a soldier in the information war because information war is something very different from journalism. It's more about memes or maybe public opinions or something like that. Which is also, of course, it makes sense, but it's just different from my profession. So I see the sense of journalism as to spread information about how it is to live in the country and in war and what people think about that. How do they cope with everything? How did they live under occupation, for example, or how they survived? some things during the war, if we're talking about the war. So, yeah, I think it's just uh, different professions. And it is important to me to save this profession in the times of war. It's also
0: very important. Absolutely. And I want to add that Zaborona has received the prestigious Free Media Award. So it's an award-winning publication. Let's talk about life under occupation. You have reported extensively from areas of combat, and you've seen with your own eyes how people live under the occupation and under these conditions. So, tell us what you're seeing. What is life like for ordinary citizens under the Russian occupation? Back in April,
1: I was helping one of my friend's family to escape Mariupol. They lived in Mariupol. They're originally from Donetsk. And we didn't have any mobile connection to talk to them, to ask them if they are actually alive and how they are. But in April they told us that we evacuated from Mariupol, now we're in Russia and we helped them to escape from Russia to another country. And when they were in safe place, I recorded interview with them. And it was you can just read it in the books about Second World War or in the films, because they describe how they were surviving in Mariupol. And I understand that they are smart people that can use their skills, they had skills, to survive. And so many people didn't have it, and they did not survive. One of the family members, he described me, how was it, for example, when Russian occupiers came to their part of the town. It was pretty rare to have clean water in Marietal. And he heard a woman who was screaming, water, I need water, please, somebody help me. And he tried to understand where she is, in which apartment. And he told me, like, I didn't find her. I just heard the voice, but I didn't manage to find her. And he started crying because he just realized that maybe she died there because he didn't help her. So many people went through such horrible things. I guess this is what we should know about occupation, that some people survive and some people can't survive because they just can't. And that's what we see now in Kharkiv region, in liberated areas, that so many people died just because they couldn't
0: manage. To survive, You write in one of your articles that occupation, first and foremost, is a humanitarian crisis, that everything is in short supply, right? Food, you just mentioned clean water. Obviously, people don't have jobs or money. There's no medical assistance. What would you say were the skills that helped your friend to survive? I can tell you
1: that it is kind of a communication skills. Probably this is the most important, because this man managed to create kind of a small community in the basement of his house. There were 20 or 25 people in there. He made a friendship with a few guys in there, and they just started to search for food, like everywhere where they could find it, like in stores, which were, of course, closed, but they managed to find water. They went to a different sources where he could find water. It was dangerous, but somebody should do it. And they did under shelling, under threats of occupiers who were looking after men in the town. And he talked with military men, like Russians or from Donetsk. He tried to figure out what is going on because they didn't have mobile connection, right? They collected information from (laughs) whatever. And then they shared everything that they collected with their neighbors in the basement and that's how they survived. And if you don't have any friends, and of course we know that many people do not have friends or do not have relatives or they just alone. So you won't receive anything, you just have to find it by your own. And sometimes it is difficult to do under the occupation when it is constant shelling from different sides. So yeah, I guess
0: communication is the king of survival. Well, yeah, and being able to form a community around you where you can share things and share tasks. That sounds like a really important skill and strategy. What about leaving an occupied area? You said that he needed help getting out. What made it hard to get out? Okay, let's start with the situation. Because, for example, if you ended up in Kherson,
1: somehow you made the invasion in Kherson. Which was occupied very quickly, like on the second day of the invasion. And you have patriotic pro-Ukrainian tattoos on your skin. And you are also, for example, activists of some Ukrainian organization which is, for example, banned in Russia, or even not banned, but they know that this is kind of organization that is very pre-Ukrainian, very patriotic. So you have not so many options to escape the city. And we know lots of examples when people like that ended up in filtration camps
0: or in Russian prisons, and many of them are still there or they were killed. Because what? Because on the way out, they're being checked, right? Yes. Sometimes they try to escape and they go through the checkpoints. And sometimes
1: like Russian police or FSB come to the home and just arrest them. And sometimes, for example, in Kherson, Russian officials have this list of activists and military men that not allowed to escape the persecution. And you never know, even people who were just journalists, local journalists in Kherson, they never knew that they can end up in a situation like that. And Russians came to them, they arrested them, tortured them. And you can imagine what kind of horrible things that, that can do with you if you're a journalist. Because to be a journalist in Ukraine today is something pretty dangerous. Because Russia do not want to have witnesses of their
0: atrocities, so they prefer to eliminate journalists if they have an opportunity. So people in the occupied territories actually have to hide. There are people who have to be in hiding. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. Yes. Some hide. Some use, let's say, corruption (laughs) to escape. So it is possible. And when we talk about Mariupol, you could escape to the Ukrainian side through the um, communitarian corridors. It was pretty rare, but they had some opportunities to leave to the Ukrainian side. And they had option to escape to Russia. And then you just have to move from Taganrog to Moscow, from Moscow to St. Petersburg, then to Estonia or... Latvia or Georgia, you have some options to escape. So many preferred this option, but still they had filtration camps even there. So if you had patriotic status or track record
0: for Ukrainian positions, so it was very, very dangerous. What is a filtration camp? I've read about those in your reporting. What are they like? Who gets into them? Where are they? Men from
1: 18 to 60, who are people that can be enlisted in the army, they are all should go through filtration camps. And for men, it's always harder to go through checkpoints, for example, because they are men just because of that. And if you women with children, it is much easier to escape, but if you are in military it is, of course, different situation. So yeah, thousands of men went through these filtration camps and hundreds ended up in
0: prisons. Or we don't know where they are still. They disappear. Yeah. So they put people in filtration camps, they put men in filtration camps, and then what, they check their backgrounds? And how long do people stay in them? I mean, what's the system? It's hard to say
1: about the system because journalists never have been there. We know about filtration camps only from our sources, like people who went through these camps. So I guess even international organizations like Red Cross never been to filtration camps. So Russia did not allow them. So we only can say from these sources. And they check your social media. If you deleted it from your computer or your mobile phone, they search it like in Google, in Facebook, contact different social media pages. If they don't find anything, then they can question you about your political position. What do you think about Russia? What do you think about different things? And then if they think that you're not dangerous. They can allow you to go. Many people in Ukraine do not know what to expect when they leave their hometown. So sometimes it creates troubles for them if they have some patriotic post in their Facebook or something like that. And I know that people with patriotic tattoos even try to eliminate the tattoos from the skin. My colleagues from Zabroni even interviewed some tattoo masters who did it in the occupation.
0: And this happens to civilians. Do prisoners of war also get put into filtration camps, or is that a whole separate category? If they take you as a military... On the battlefield, of course, it's different. They have some filtration camps, but it's different. It's just for military, and you never know what will happen there. Yeah, and you've had some really hair-raising reports about prisoners of war as well, about their treatment, that there are severe beatings and torture and people being tied up with barbed wire. It's just horrible, and it's such a total flaunting of the Geneva Convention. Why do you think, do they not care that these constitute war crimes? I've been witnessing this issue back in
1: 2014. Russian proxies in Donetsk and Lugansk, they took hundreds of prisoners of war. They claimed that they are Nazis and that they should be killed. So it is not the new thing for Russia. They just use it now wider than it was in 2014. I remember that they killed some of Ukrainian fighters from volunteer battalions near Donetsk just because they wanted to show that they have a power and they can do whatever they want, and they will not be prosecuted for that in international court. And that was kind of true because they never been prosecuted by international law. It created the situation that we have now after eight years. I would really love to hear an explanation from people from UN and other international organizations that have to protect humanity from things like that. I think this injustice in the war since 2014 created this whole invasion because they never been prosecuted and Ukraine never seen a real justice to the country. I understand that it could be complicated, but Russian officials like Putin, they really know how international organizations work. And they use it as kind of a weapon, I guess, because they know that they will not be prosecuted.
0: When the Russian army retreated from the occupied territories around Kiev, from Irpin and Bucha, we saw remnants of horrible crimes. Mass graves. What are we seeing from the latest retreats in the east? What do you anticipate to be found there? Well, we already have seen a mass
1: grave in Izum, Kharkiv region. It's very close to Donbass. It's more than 400 people in this mass grave, unidentified. And we know that in Mariupol, we have maybe 20,000 of people in mass graves. This is what we can conclude from the satellite images and investigations. It's a huge number, and it's not actually even military. It's just civilians who died from the shelling. And the longer the occupation, the more victims of the war we will see after liberation. It is horrible, but I know for sure that people who escaped Mariupol, they really want to go back and to find their beloved ones. Even if they know that they are not alive, it is very important to uh, to go there and to bury them normally. So I think the things that we will see after the liberation,
0: it will be much worse than we saw in in and NLP. <sighs> You interviewed the mayor of Mykolaiv, and he talked about, this is just going back to another aspect of life under occupation, where he talks about how they're basically daily under shelling. And on a daily basis, they have to be repairing infrastructure water supply lines, electrical infrastructure, the sewage system, fuel supply system, pipelines, cables. And I think he uses the term, the words that it's like a groundhog day, that every day you're repairing and repairing and repairing. And I mean, it has to be really just exhausting. You have to have some sense of hope and optimism in order to keep doing that. So how do people do that?
1: In Mycolaiv, 80% of people lost their jobs after the invasion So I guess for many of them to do something is actually to live normally. So it's kind of a new normal that you just go and volunteer, you go and do things that you've never done before, but it is somehow support you to not go crazy because of everything. It is really helpful actually to have something like that. And if you have to repair houses every day, it's actually fine. I mean, it is something to live for
0: <laughs> every day. That's a good point. It keeps you busy, right? Keeps yeah. Your mind off of... Yeah. Uh, and yeah. actually, you know that you help people every day
1: mm. and it keeps you thinking that you're not useless in this war. You try to help. And I guess that's why uh, people there are pretty optimistic because they know that mm. they have a place to help others.
0: And it's really important. That's a really good perspective. I want to ask you about a topic that I think is painful in such situations, and that's collaboration. How much collaboration are you seeing in the occupied areas? And what I'm also wondering about, what will happen as Russian army retreats? What happens to the collaborators? Do they live with them? Do they stay? I can imagine that it just creates a rift in the community. It is complicated of course it has to be decided from the officials
1: like how to prosecute people who collaborated on the official level mayors or some people administrations of course they should be prosecuted as collaborators because they had power they had resources they had access to the information like to official information and to some lists of citizens and whatever. And in the other hand, we have people who just helped, for example, Russian soldiers to find activists, to find military, and some locations, for example, that could be connected with military bases. It's two different stories. And when you see the first one, you observe who collaborated on the official level. You can see that they all are from the um, Partia Regionov. It is a former party who was under the fourth president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, who fled to Russia in 2014.
0: Party of the Regions. Yeah, Party
1: of the Regions. Politicians who were in this line of pro-Russian side in politics in Ukraine. And they actually collaborated with Russia. They used their power, their authority to settle the occupation. And many security servicemen and prosecutors, policemen, joined Russian forces in their efforts to invade Ukraine. So most of the collaborators were from the pro-Russian parties, and they were allowed to go to elections back in 2019, for example. They were not prosecuted. Then they switched the country. (laughs) They decided to work on evil and to sell their own country. And some of them just sold their country for just a small promotion. Like one guy was deputy prosecutor in a small region, and then Russians told them that he would be promoted to a prosecutor just one step more. It's absolutely incredible. I cannot imagine. But yeah, we
0: had hundreds and hundreds of people like that. And it must be one of the reasons why Russia thought it would be so easy to just take Ukraine over. They must have taken that and projected it onto the rest of the country. And obviously, of course, yes. Yes.
1: And I know that they tried to collaborate with some people in the other regions, but they decided not to do that because they realized what kind of trouble it would be. And On the other hand, I guess Russian technologists really did not realize that Ukrainians would not be collaborating with them in mass.
0: From Kyiv region says they didn't realize that they will fail. Right. Well, if the reports that we are reading are right, the morale among Ukrainians is actually very high because people are fighting for their country and it's much higher than in the occupying force. Would you say it's true? What's your sense of that?
1: I think that Ukrainians are fighting not only for Ukraine, but they are fighting for Europe and for democracy. They actually also fighting for Russia and for Belarus and for Moldova <laughs> and Georgia and other countries in post-Soviet world that never managed to fight for democracy. So I guess this is something that makes us strong. It makes us hopeful that this will end, and the end will be on the bright side of this horrible thing. Yeah, Because we don't have any option. You know, in Ukraine, we say, we don't have no other option but to win the war. Because if we fail, then the half of our planet will fail because
0: it will be a disaster. It is already a disaster, but it will be worse. I want to ask you, so you're a founder and editor-in-chief of Zaborona, and you're also a founder of the 2402 Foundation. Tell us about that foundation. What is that? We created this foundation
1: maybe on the second day of the invasion along with my husband, because we try to help our colleagues, journalists from Ukraine who just met the invasion absolutely naked, I mean, without helmets, without bulletproof vests, without anything that can protect you during the reporting from the war zones. And we realized that, okay, we have experience. We've been reporting in the war zones since 2014. And we've seen a lot and we know for sure what is right and what is wrong and what should we do to protect you when you are in a hostile environment. And we just started looking for a vest and helmets and we were fundraising. And so many people supported the fund actually from across the globe. It was pretty inspiring because when you're a journalist, you're used to be a badass. You are not comfortable for people because sometimes you tell not very comfortable truth about events, but then we realize that so many people really want to see what is going on, even if it's some horrible things, even if it's uncomfortable, but they need to see that. And to go and report from the war zone, you really need a protection. So we bought about 300 bulletproof vests and helmets for Ukrainian journalists. And we continue to do so because we have lots of requests for the protection. We make trainings for journalists and it always like 50 people in the room who really wants to know everything about reporting from the war zone because they never knew that they will become a war correspondent in their own country. Even we had the war in Donbass, but they never thought that they should report from the war. And now they have to. So I guess this is something that inspire me also to continue my journalist work. When you see that people really want to report. And there are so many people that really want to
0: see the coverage of the war. So you just continue this thing to help. And we will include links to some of the articles that we discussed today in our show notes. So there will be a link to the website. And if people want to contribute to your foundation to support you, where should they go? They should
1: go at 2402.org. And it has English version and Ukrainian and even Spanish and some other language versions. Great. I really will be grateful for support because sometimes it is not even about the financial support, but when you see those small donations from different countries, you imagine that people there really care about Ukraine and it's
0: very exciting. Absolutely. I will include that link as well. By the way, why is it called 2402 Foundation? What is the meaning of that number?
1: I mean, we thought that it would be obvious because 24 or two, it's a reminder that the full-scale invasion of Ukraine started on 24 February. I understand that it is not so obvious for people from outside of Ukraine, but we thought that it would be great to make a reminder
0: that this was a very important point in the history. Yeah, absolutely. Katya. I want to thank you so very much for being with us today. I want to thank you for your reporting. We're very grateful for it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. For the Canon Institute, I am Isabella Tabarovsky. Thank you for listening. And we look forward to having you with us on our next episode of The Russia File.